Our scripture reading today comes from John, third chapter, 15 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Lewa campus. I'm Tom. I serve on the teaching team at Christ Community. And for those of you who are online, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, before I begin the message this morning, I would like you, if you would be so kind, to join me in prayer for the nation of Ukraine and our world that is on tiptoe right now. Let's pray. Sovereign triune God, you are the God who holds all nations in your hand and guides the course of human history. As your people, we humbly and hopefully come to you in prayer for the nation of Ukraine that is facing the gruesome ravages of war. We ask that you would bring peace to that land, protect and strengthen our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ, and may your church be the healing heart and caring hands of Jesus in this very difficult moment. Grant our national and world leaders divine wisdom resilient courage and caring compassion in responding to this unprovoked war of aggression. With one mind and heart as your people, we pray in Jesus' name, the name above every name, the name at which every knee will bow on heaven and earth. And God's people said, amen. Now, whether you've been in church, you know, a ton of your life and you know the Christian scriptures well, or you're just coming back to church and you haven't read the Bible much, I want to suggest to you there is a verse in the Christian scriptures you probably have heard of. Perhaps some of you, many of you could quote it, but I am confident you have seen it on your way to work on a billboard or in the end zone of your favorite Chiefs game. The sign simply reads, you with me? What? John 3.16. So why the sign? What is it about John 3.16 that's such a big deal? Well, John 3.16 captures a core teaching of Jesus on saving faith. And for Jesus, saving faith was essential for human flourishing. Your flourishing and mine and the world's. Saving faith was the key that opened the door to the truly good and beautiful and wonderful life our hearts so long to experience. So what is saving faith in Jesus? What was he speaking about 
And why is it so important to your life and mine? If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to me in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Now, last week, if you were with us here at Leewood, Pastor Andrew beautifully and wonderfully explored the amazing conversation that Rabbi Jesus had with this devout and morally upright rabbi, Jewish religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. And if you were here, you remember Jesus confronts the religious Nicodemus with a bedrock truth about saving faith. It is a saving faith that dismisses any kind of earned religious merit, but requires a new birth, a new heart, one that leads to a transformed life in all of life. Jesus looks at Nicodemus in that gentlemanly way in that night on probably a rooftop, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, your religious devotion, however noble and admirable, will not get you there. In fact, you can't even see the kingdom, let alone enter it, unless you are spiritually born. And Nicodemus, if you enter into that story, you can almost see him scratching his head, can't you? He's perplexed. Jesus looks at him again and he says, you are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Now, in English, in our 21st century context, we think Jesus maybe is sort of condescending here or being unkind, quite the contrary. These two rabbis know the Old Testament. And the idea of a new birth should never have been foreign to Nicodemus. In fact, all through this text, prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah are in the backdrop. For the prophets of the Old Testament look down the corridor of future history of a new covenant. For example, the prophet Ezekiel describes God giving his people a brand new heart, a birth. In Ezekiel 36, 26, for example, Ezekiel will say, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. Now let's remember also as we enter this text and this story that John the gospel writer was most likely, almost certainly present when Nicodemus came to Jesus that night and had that conversation on a rooftop. John's close proximity invites us in an amazing way as readers into this very intimate and unforgettable conversation between Rabbi Jesus and Rabbi Nicodemus. And while we know that verses 2 through 15, which we explored last week, capture more of the specific conversation, I need you not to forget the entire chapter hangs like a shadow the conversation of Nicodemus is almost in every verse till the end of the chapter. It hovers over it. And throughout this chapter, the repeated literary themes center around saving faith. So this morning, what I'd like us to do as we probe this text is to see embedded in it are three foundations of saving faith. Three foundations of saving faith. First, God loves us more than we can ever, ever imagine. In verses 16 through 7, look with me if you would. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, when we peel back the curtain of time, we imagine from God's posture of glorious holiness and a modem of unfathomable love, God the Father sent Jesus his son 
on a divine rescue mission to save his fallen image bearers from eternal separation from himself. Now, if we slow down and pause to reflect a little bit on this often familiar verse, the intensity and beauty of God's love, its breath, its width, its sacrificial nature overwhelms us. The length that God went to to make possible our rescue is simply breathtaking. It is completely overwhelming to our minds and senses. John intends it to be that way. And think about this for just a moment. Peel back a sort of shallow familiarity. Imagine that the creator God of the universe, what the Bible speaks of, the one who called the stars all by name, in the vastness of his universe, <laughs> would even care, let alone deeply love, tiny specks of human beings on a tiny planet on the edge of the Milky Way. This is beyond us. You know, the Old Testament psalmist <laughs> looked in the night sky, the Middle East, and he said, basically, when I consider all this, what are, what's man or what's humanity that you even think of him? But here in John chapter 3, it's not just a fleeting thought. We discover our creator God took more than a mere glance and thought of us. He deeply, deeply loves us. He loves you. And out of the depths of his love, he longs to know you and be known by you. We of all his creation are his beloved. Do we grasp what John is writing to us about? I remember as a young boy, I grew up in church, and I remember Mrs. Johnson uh, in my Sunday school class. And I remember singing this little song that many of you know, but it stuck with me as one of the most important liturgies of my life. And I remember us all gathered there as little kiddos singing what? Jesus loves me. I won't sing it, I promise. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so right? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. The gospel writer John, later in another inspired letter in the New Testament, 1 John 4, 9 and 10, puts it this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Sharon Garlow Brown has this fun little book called Sensible Shoes. But she puts it beautifully. She says this, Jesus loves you too much to let you root your identity in what you do for him. Rather than who you are to him. He loves you too much to let you wrap yourself in anything other than his love for you, his deep, uncontainable, extravagant love for you. Spot on. Now reflect with me for a moment, a time. Let's just think with me for a moment. A time maybe this week or this past year or in your life when you experience intense human love. Right? When you love someone so much, you thought you would burst for joy. It is a deep love that cannot be contained in words. Maybe it was a wedding day. I, I still remember, you know, that day when my bride Liz, I'm almost 40 years now, 
walked down the aisle. I mean, there is nothing I could describe the love at that moment. Or perhaps it's the moment you held your children or a grandchild in your hand for the first time. You know what I'm saying. Words can't capture that love. Maybe it was waiting a long, long, long time for an answer to prayer. And then when God intervenes in your life in an unmistakable way, you are surrounded with love like you've never experienced. John is describing a love that is immeasurable. The love God has for you. Yes, for the world, but for you as an individual. Do you grasp that? That he delights in you when he walks into the room. God's love unveiled by John here is a saving love. It's a rescuing love, a love that takes the initiative. And notice with me here in verse 16 how the question of what Jesus saves us from and what Jesus saves us for is embedded in the text. Two very important questions. What does Jesus save us from and what does he save us for? Notice the text. Whoever believes, that means places their complete trust in Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, so let's slow down just a minute. So what does saving faith in Jesus save us from, and what does it save us for? Still with me? Saving faith in Jesus saves us from, notice the text, perishing. That is, being eternally separated from God. The text is not ambiguous. Saving faith in Jesus, right, saves us for something. And that is, in the text, eternal life. Now, what does this text mean by eternal life, friends? What does it mean? Well, often, right, we hear the word eternal life, We immediately think of, I know this is good English, but never-endingness, right, of timelessness. But we must understand that eternal life, as Jesus speaks of it, is not primarily a quantity concept. Hear me carefully. But a relational concept. It is not something primarily that never ends. But it is an intimate relationship with God that goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper throughout all eternity. Later on in John's gospel, in the priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17, 3, Jesus actually defines eternal life so we don't miss it. And this is what Jesus says. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, what we are saved for, is experiencing delightful intimacy with the triune God now and for all eternity. It is a grace gift from God. It is made possible by a new birth. See, the awesome news is Jesus' sinless incarnation, stepping in time-space history, his atoning death, his death-defeating resurrection makes it possible for us to experience this eternal life. What often many theologians describe as the with God life. With God, now and forever. And the wonderful news of God's love is no matter your past, no matter your present, no matter what you have done or left undone, 
No matter your struggles, your failures, your shortcomings, your doubts, your fears, your loneliness, God loves you more than you can ever imagine. This is one of the truest truths of the universe, but notice on the heels of this a hard truth that emerges. And the second foundation of saving faith is that we are more broken than any of us care to admit. Look at verses 18 through 20. The gospel writer continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God, the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And notice this, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works or deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, you'll notice that John reintroduces in a literary way the two big metaphors he introduced to us in the prologue in John 1. The metaphors of light and darkness that describe the broken human condition. These are contrasting. Eugene Peterson brilliantly, as he often does in his message paraphrase, captures these verses. Let me read this. Peterson says, this is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world. But men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God's light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God's light so that the work can be seen for the God work it is. Now, when it comes to good and evil, darkness and light, as fallen image bearers, we cannot claim the flag of ignorance or neutrality. Nor can we duck for cover saying, the devil made me do it. Now, Satan's presence and work in the world is very real. Don't miss that. But this text points to your heart and my heart. In our hearts are rebel hearts running for the darkness, hating the light, refusing to honor God or conform to his creation design or desire for us. But rather, to descend more and more in light-hating depravity in our thoughts, words, and actions. Romans chapter 1 captures that downward spiral. Hear me carefully. We sin because we are sinners, by nature and by choice. My broken human condition, your broken human condition, is hopeless. Apart from saving faith in Jesus, who is Savior and Lord. This is why Jesus says, I am the way. Not a way. I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John Newton, who lived a very depraved life as a slave trader, can you imagine, came to saving faith in Jesus, and he wrote the most recognized Christian hymn. You know it, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, 
but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. When John Newton was asked about his life, he said, I, I know two great things. I know I'm a great sinner, and I know Jesus is a great Savior. See, in our growing secular age, we are finding a resurgence of atheism. Along with that, an anything-goes moral relativism. It's pervasive in our time. Why is this? Well, we could point to many contributing factors, including the imminent frame of our secularism, many other things. But I want to suggest to you, Jesus gets right to the core issue 2,000 years ago. Verse 19, look with me. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. If we are honest, we simply want to do what we want to do, right? And have no one, let alone God, tell us what to do or how to order our loves properly or our daily life priorities. One of the most outspoken atheists of the 20th century is Bertrand Russell. He wrote a lot, very influential in the 20th century. And uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, was just hostile to God. I mean, his disbelief in God was everywhere. And uh, he was asked, why do you have such strong passion to disbelieve in God? And he said, it's because he has not given me enough evidence of his existence. But let me respectfully ask this question. It's the claim of not having enough evidence to believe in God, Bertrand Russell's main reason, or even your reason or my reason for unbelief in Jesus. Let me suggest that the great obstacle to saving faith is what Jesus says right here. It is not the intellectual plausibility of the Christian faith. It is, we have more than enough to believe that. Behind the veil of unbelief resides the moral implications of that belief. Because Jesus Christ is not only Savior, he is Lord. And saving faith recognizes and honors both. This text reminds us that saving faith has a foundation that God loves you more than you can imagine. Secondly, we are more broken women. And thirdly, what we often miss in this text is the third foundation, and that is the way of saving faith is narrower than we think. Look at verse 21. But whoever, notice the language, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There is a whole lot here in verse 21. But let me kind of highlight a couple things. Notice with me how saving faith is framed and builds to a crescendo here around authenticating evidence of obedience to Christ in our lives. Notice the phrases in English, doing what is true and works carried out in God. And what that helps us see is that saving faith is not merely some kind of mental assent that we give to Jesus or it's not something we can earn by what we do. See, the Christian faith is unique of all religions. At its very core, it's wholly different than any other philosophy or, or, or faith. Saving faith is not possible in Christianity by what we do, but by what God and Christ has done for us in time, space, history. Living among us, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. Now, what is so stunning to us is God's nail-scarred hands in Christ have a wide-open 
invitation of love to everyone on this planet to embrace saving faith in Jesus. The invitation is broad and wide. But Jesus also teaches us that saving faith is not a wide way. It is a narrow way. In Jesus' most famous sermon, you might have heard of it, the Sermon on the Mount, captured in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this. These are Jesus' words. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those are few who find it. Now Jesus' words are a reminder for all of us that when it comes to the path of faith, we can get off course. And we can find ourselves in a couple of deceptive faith dead ends. Recently, Liz and I were in Arizona, suffering for Jesus with some dear friends. It was awesome. <laughs> and uh, we were driving our car, and I'm usually the navigator, Liz is the driver, and we're heading back to the house we were staying at from uh, lunch. And I had Liz take a turn, and we ended up, like this is in Phoenix, we ended up in a big field out in the middle of Phoenix. I don't know, you know, but there's a big dead end sign, right? And so we laughed and chuckled and turned around, you know, get jabbed each other about how we got lost. But dead ends when you're driving are one thing. But dead ends of faith are another thing. They are really big deals. And I want to highlight out of love for you and my pastoral calling and the stewardship God has given me in this text to highlight two deceptive dead ends that people end up. The first deceptive dead end is what we might call the dead end of works righteousness. This is particularly perilous for the morally religious who can be deceived into thinking that somehow we, you, I, can earn God's favor by all the good things we do. As a pastor, I often hear people cling to this false and faulty faith. Sincerely, but faulty. That when they die and meet God, it'll be all their good efforts will somehow outweigh all the poor choices they have made. That somehow God, they look at others that are worse, right? And God's going to grade on, grade on the curve and they're going to tip the scales. Nicodemus found himself at this dead end of faith. The works righteousness deception shrouds the truth that saving faith in Jesus is rooted in grace. And grace, by its very definition, hear me carefully, is not something that can be earned ever. It is only a gift that can be received. The second deceptive dead end that feigns for saving faith is more perilous to us, I think. Because it is more subtle and transparently, I fear, more common in our cultural context. The deceptive dead end might be called easy believism. The dead end has a deceptive view of both faith and grace. Saving faith is distorted by asserting it is some kind of mere mental assent to who Jesus is and what he has done. It may even include the goodness and good affirmation of sound orthodox doctrine. But it does not have a complete trust in Jesus, both as personal Savior and personal Lord of one's life. 
Dallas Willard brilliantly describes this distortion of faith as barcode faith. It is a faulty faith that gives mental assent to the truths of Christianity and is viewed as a ticket to heaven. It is often seen on the focus of making a decision for Jesus without becoming a disciple of Jesus. Easy believism is not only a distortion of faith, it is a distortion of grace. This is why the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer martyred by the Nazis in his brilliant book of the 20th century, one of the best, The Cost of Discipleship, describes the peril of what he calls cheap grace as opposed to the costly grace of the gospel. In The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer puts it this way, costly grace was turned into cheap grace without discipleship. And then Bonhoeffer goes on to say this. Listen, he says, the word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. Gospel grace, properly understood, hear me carefully, is always and without exception opposed to any kind of human earning or merit. But it is not opposed to human effort and obedience. Grace received from God as an unmerited gift fuels our rightly motivated response of loving devotion and obedience to God. Saving faith in Jesus, rightly understood, navigates a narrow way. It avoids the dead ends of works righteousness or legalistic earning on one side and easy belie believism, cheap grace on the other. Saving faith puts us on a path of cross-bearing discipleship, which leads to the deepening of our wholehearted devotion and love for Christ and an increasing fruitfulness in all dimensions of our life. In the form.life, which I hope you will join us if you haven't already, this week, you were encouraged, we were encouraged as a church family across our campuses to memorize Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And rightly so, because this text echoes John 3. Paul echoes exactly what John is saying. Paul speaks of gospel faith in a narrow way, not of cheap grace, but of costly grace. What does Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 say? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, again, the grammar does not stop there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In our text this morning, we have explored three foundational truths about saving faith. Number one. God loves us more. He loves you more than you can ever imagine or fathom. But secondly, we are more broken than we care to admit. Thirdly, that the way is narrower than we often think. So I'm going to suggest for you briefly in closing three questions for reflection wherever you are in your spiritual journey. Number one, have you embraced saving faith? Saving faith in Jesus is essential to human flourishing, to your flourishing both now and forever. Oh, are you on the dead end of works righteousness or on the other side of easy believism, a kind of cheap grace? Is that where you're living? Or have you repented of your sin and placed your complete trust in Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, and are you following him as a result in a path of discipleship? 
Where does your ultimate trust in life lie? What does your heart love most? These are indicators of your saving faith. Saving faith will not be hidden. It will in time become evident in a transformed heart, a reordering of one's loves, a changed life, and a joyful commitment to local church community. Saving faith points us to spiritual community. And if you've not yet embraced saving faith, may you do that this morning in the quiet church. If you are younger or older, it doesn't matter. Will you silently in repentance and sincere prayer of faith trust Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning if you haven't? Second question is, where are you loving the darkness? Our text this morning gets right to the heart of the heart of the matter, which is your heart and mine. How do our hearts love the darkness? How do they run to and chase after the darkness? Jesus emphasized deeds and actions that place us in the sphere in the realm of darkness, the darkness of disobedience. And when each one of us step outside of God's design and desire for our lives and make ultimate the pursuit of power, sex, money, we fill our lives with darkness rather than light. So do we need to shine the light of truth of God's word this morning? and seek repentance for our sexual thoughts and behaviors, how we are spending our money or our resources, or our selfish ambitions at work or in our community. We also love the darkness when we refuse to forgive others, when we ignore injustice, when we fail to care for the poor and vulnerable, when we nurture a root of bitterness in our life towards someone when we gossip or live undisciplined and distracted lives. Where are you loving darkness in your life? Where am I? Will you embrace the light of truth and grace and repentance this morning in the power of the Holy Spirit? And will you then experience the abundant life Jesus offers to all who follow him? Lastly, let me raise this question because of our therapeutic age. How are you medicating your life? We live in a very stressful time, no doubt. It is as if our sense of self has dramatically changed, and with it has come coping with the world that never leads to flourishing. And this morning, we may not find ourselves in the darkness of willful disobedience. I don't know where God has you this morning. I don't know what's going on there. Be honest with him. But we may be dulling the heartache, the grief, the loss, the pain in our lives with things, with pleasures, with distractions or relationships that will not ultimately bring the joy and wholeness to our lives that only Jesus can do. Saving faith in Jesus, friends, does not spare us from suffering. You know that. Or trials or difficulties. Not at all. But it infuses joy and renewed strength to endure with life-giving hope as we walk through the darkest valleys of life, even the dark valley of death. Friends, John 3.16 is more than a sign we see at a sports event, isn't it? It is the grace-paved path to the flourishing life now and forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and for many of us, it may seem 
superficial and familiar. But may the Spirit of God speak to each heart. And may we respond. And may we embrace saving faith.